Hello. Before we get started with our latest episode of the BSO podcast, we'd like to share with you a great new way to make a tax-deductible donation to the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra. Just text the word GIVE to 718-690-7037. That's 718-690-7037. Answer the messages that get sent back to you and then enter your payment info. It's quick and easy and we'll email you a receipt when you're done. Your donations will help our community orchestra continue making music and bringing it to audiences in 2017. Thanks for your support and happy holidays. and welcome to the seventh episode of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Caitlin Choi, a violist in the orchestra. And I'm Kate Stocker, violinist in the orchestra. And the clip of music you just heard was Overture to Semirami Day by Rossini. In this episode of the podcast, we will be speaking with Felipe Tristan, the assistant conductor of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra, who will be conducting Tchaikovsky's Overture to Romeo and Juliet on our December 18th concert. We'll also be speaking with Andrew Copper, who is the principal French horn player in the orchestra, so we can hear about his experience as a musician in the BSO. We're here now with Felipe Tristan, the assistant conductor of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra. Hi, Felipe. Hello, Kate. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Hi. Hi, Kaylin. So, Felipe, you've been with the orchestra now for about a year and a half. Is that right? Two years? That's right. About a year and a half now. And how long have you been playing music? Well, I've been playing music or involved in music for most of my life, actually. My first encounter with music was singing when I was very, very young, five or six years old. And then when I was eight, I started actually playing instruments. I started with the French horn and then alto sax for a few years until I made the final switch to the flute. So you're, you are a flautist. I am a flautist. That is my instrument. And my degrees are in flute performance. And where did you go to study flute? Yes. Well, I went to the conservatory in Monterey, Mexico, my hometown. I did my undergrad there. And then for grad school, I went to the University of Houston. I did a master's. And then an artist diploma in North Carolina, the School of the Arts. And then I came to New York after that for a fellowship at Lincoln Center. And then after that, I decided to stay here in New York. And when did you get into conducting? Well, the first thing I ever conducted was in my undergrad when I was taking a class for non-majors. And this must have been, I think, 2000 and 
five or six. But way before that, I had been intrigued by conducting, by conductors, by by how music worked in terms of putting it together. And then so practically, I actually started getting opportunities after I took that first class. And so parallel to that, to the, my undergrad, on Saturdays, there was a orchestra, youth orchestra that I was part of. And... I receive opportunities from the conductor to try out, hey, can you help me in this rehearsal? Can you do this, do that? Because, you know, I asked and I guess he must have seen that I wanted to do it. And so I was very blessed to to have him as a supporter. And so then he actually invited me to conduct a full concert with a youth orchestra. And it was a big deal for me. At the time, actually... I thought it was great, but at the same time, I didn't realize the magnitude of the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, a full concert with Beethoven First Symphony, Carmen Suites, Rossini Barber of Seville Overture, and film music. I think it was the Gladiator, Hans Zimmer Gladiator. Oh, that's a good piece. Medley. Yeah. It's a great piece. And so anyway, the concert went well, and then after that I became more serious and started taking workshops, studying privately, and seven years later, I am fully serious in conducting. That's incredible. So how old were you when you conducted that concert? In 2009, I must have been 26. Wow, that's pretty impressive. That's very interesting that that was where you had your first big break, so to say, in conducting was with a group like this with, you know, students and adults. And here we are now with the BSO and it's, you know, a community orchestra and it's very similar. What do you think as a conductor you bring to an ensemble? What do you think your your strength is? Well, I think with every orchestra and every conductor, of course, it's going to be different, like a relationship. It's a compatibility thing mm-hmm. with the difference that you have to make it work. <laughs> in a relationship, you can say, well, this is not working. Let's go. But <laughs> in, in this type of context, you have to make it work. And so it's ultimately you're at the service of music. And so you have to deliver a product. So when I, in particular, to answer your question about Brooklyn Symphony, I know that uh, generally speaking in in groups like like the Brooklyn Symphony or other community groups that I work with, the sense is that, well, we are community, you can demand only so much. But I've received very good feedback and results when I push a lot more, and especially when the results are there with no time, basically in one or two rehearsals, you push and then you receive. And so that's when the good dynamic starts, because ultimately you as a musician want the person that's in front of you to push you to play your best because everybody wants to play their best. Yeah, right. So Kate and I are both musicians in the orchestra, and we've been through a couple rehearsals with you now for this piece that we're going to be playing. And I was wondering, how do you prepare as a conductor for rehearsal and specifically for this piece? What's your preparation been like? Well, ideally, you should always have a plan as customized as possible, meaning ideally you already know the orchestra, what are the strengths and the weaknesses of the orchestra, and in the piece in particular, what are the hardest parts in the orchestra, what plays itself so to speak. And so I've been lucky to have seen you guys, the Brooklyn Symphony, rehearse many times as part of my duties of assistant conductor. And so by the time I rehearse the first time 
uh, Romeo and Juliet, I already knew what areas I could start jumping right in and say, let's work on this. And on the piece, of course, you know, you, you try to prepare to understand the piece as much as possible. So that in having that in mind, I can set up a plan. How much time do we have? Let's jump jump right in into this section, which is tricky section. And now let's do some work that's totally, seems totally unrelated to the piece, but that ultimately will get us there. Um, whether it's playing a scale <laughs> or doing fundamental work. You know, in this case, I believe that with the Brooklyn Symphony, the more work we do for opening our ears to listen as a group, the more the orchestra is going to develop its sound or its identity. I think technically it's very capable. It's a it's an excellent group of musicians and really there isn't anything to, to stop it from, from sounding fantastic. Mm. That's great. Yeah. What made you decide to conduct the Tchaikovsky? Well, that's a very good question. Nick Armstrong, artistic director of the BSO, and myself had a conversation a few months ago where he asked me if I had a few pieces in mind that I wanted to conduct for my first time conducting the BSO. And I sent him a list, a list of 10 pieces, but the first five was really a copy-paste of Tchaikovsky, Romeo, and Juliet. Tchaikovsky, Romeo, and Juliet. Tchaikovsky, <laughs> Romeo, and Juliet. So it was obvious that I really wanted to work on this piece. I had no idea what the theme of the concert was going to be, but I suggested that. Mm-hmm. And so it, he's, he's a very generous, very generous person, a wonderful musician, and he said, I think that you know, you're know you so attached to this piece and it only makes sense that you work on it, so let's do it. And so that's that. that's pretty much how it happened and I'm grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. That's great. It I think it works out very wonderfully with the rest of the program because it starts with the Tchaikovsky, a Russian composer, and then it kind of turns into the Spanish theme with the Manuel de Falla, the three-cornered hat, um um Ravel's Bolero, and then Capriccio Espanol. And, and then Rimsky-Korsakov's Capriccio Espanol written by a Russian composer. I think it somehow they're all connected together, which is really nice. I agree. I think the theme can be summarized as as passion, mm-hmm. if if you will, where of course, you know, Romeo and Juliet, you can you can we can elaborate about it. Um and definitely the the Spanish music that has this this flavor, very particular flavor, uh, the the ballet inspired music of the Falla, the Sombrero de Tres Picos, also um, the the bolero. It's so colorful, so rich in 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 textures, and the the Capricho Español by Rimsky Korsakov that's brilliantly written, and it's so interesting to hear a piece written by a Russian composer that sounds so legit as as Spanish music. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever conducted the Tchaikovsky before? Is this your first time conducting this piece with an orchestra? Yes, it's my first time conducting it. Mm-hmm. And what made you so passionate about this? Why Why did you say it five times in your email to Nick? What is it about this piece <laughs> that drew you to it so much? I think it's, it's an exceptional piece. Uh, Tchaikovsky has a number of overtures, but you can say that this is, if not the best, one of the best that he wrote is very clear in its intentions. It's depictive. There is a um, there's a sword fight. The Montague and the Capulet mm-hmm. are fighting. That's very obvious when it happens. There's a theme of the Friar Lawrence, which is all this dark, 
B minor section. There's a love theme that is just absolutely gorgeous. So all these different sections are so clearly depicted and written and it's demanding for every person in the orchestra. So I think it's a fantastic piece and it's hard, but I know that the orchestra can do it and I know that it's going to sound wonderful. Yeah. We're really excited to play it with you. Yeah, we really are. Felipe, as a conductor, yes. if you could choose your dream program to conduct for a concert, what would it be? Wow, dream program. You know, I... It's a very... I've never been asked that question. because I've asked... I've been asked dream orchestras, dream locations. Well, dream you're conducting programs. the dream orchestra right now. <laughs> yeah, we don't I, ask that's that. true. And a dream location, New York City. But <laughs> dream program, I think, would definitely include something Mexican and not, you know, I'm biased, of course. But I think there is wonderful music out there by Mexican composers in particular, uh, Silvestre Revueltas, Carlos Chavez. Jose Pablo Moncayo. And so somehow try to include one of these great composers. I'm just getting comfortable with Mahler. So probably Mahler one. Um, I love Verdi. I love his overtures. I love La Forza del Destino. But then again, I also love Tchaikovsky. And I would I would love to do Tchaikovsky six, his sixth symphony. And so, see, but this ridiculous program, Mahler 1, Tchaikovsky 6, Mexican piece, Verdi, Overture. So, yeah, I think it would be something definitely romantic, to summarize it, intense passion, and really go all the way program. Yeah, that sounds like a long concert, though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably we'll, we'll, just, we'll do some cuts, but... Some inter- but intermission? Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, but I think that would be a dream program and the next day I could say, okay, if I, if God takes me this morning, (laughs) I'm happy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we know that you are an assistant conductor with the BSO. We know that you're a flautist. Can you just talk about some of the projects that you have happening right now? I have a couple of other concerts coming up um, with the Symphony Orchestra of the Americas. That's another project that I started this year with colleague musicians, the support of the Mexican consulate, Canadian consulate, we started an orchestra, the Symphony wow. Orchestra of the Americas. And so we had our debut concert a couple of months ago and two more concerts. Great, great, great response. And so we're working on on the next batch of concerts. I'm also super excited because I've been selected to go to a conducting competition in Atlanta. Wow. So yeah, it's going to be fantastic. A lot of music to learn. It's a wonderful opportunity, and so I'm preparing for that. I think I'm not going to have a time to breathe it this Christmas, but it's okay. Great. It's exciting. And hopefully you and Nick will talk more about conducting some more with us because I don't want to speak for the entire orchestra, but it's I love working with you, and your rehearsals are really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really... It, as I said, it's a relationship. It takes two to tango, if that makes sense. So I've had a great time. And more than anything, thank you for doing wonderful music. Oh, thanks, Felipe. Thanks, Felipe. Thank you.
Now comes the part of our podcast where we sit down with a member of the orchestra to ask them who they are, what they play, and how they became a part of the BSO family. We're here now with Andrew Copper, our principal French horn player. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Andrew, thanks so much for coming to speak with us today. So how long have you been playing music and how did you get started? Wow. I think, unfortunately, this means I have to divulge my age. Um, I started playing the French horn when I was nine years old in 1981. I was in the fifth grade, and I took one of those tests, those band tests, where they test your hearing, and I filled out a little slip of paper where they asked me what instrument I wanted to play, and I wrote the flute, the trombone, or the French horn. All right. And my band director was a French horn player, and she didn't even pay attention to the other two, and that's how it happened. So it's your first instrument? My first Seems like a challenging instrument to get started on. Yeah. What makes the French horn so unique in comparison to the other brass instruments? It's really long. If you unfold it, like it's really long. And the mouthpiece is shaped differently than the other brass instruments. It's conical and not curved. Um, It also has a really thin rim, so it can be a little difficult sometimes. I think what I know in my interview during the last podcast and I was asked if I could play any other instrument and I said I really enjoyed brass instruments but I have great respect for horn players not just you but other horn players as well (laughs) but there's so many challenges to playing the horn. People say that all the time they say the French horn and the oboe and I think when you've only ever played the French horn I don't I guess I don't have too much to compare it to except for the piano and I just couldn't get my hands to do different things at the same time yeah, I mean, it's a ch- it can be a really challenging instrument, and it requires a lot of air. In 1981, when I started playing the instrument, it was probably bigger than I was. It was huge. And it's just so hard to fill yourself up with that much air and blow it through 20 feet of brass tubing, yeah. you know, that might come out the other end of another room if it was unraveled. So that's kind of tricky about it, you know. And, and then you have to this awkward thing where you stick your hand in it, and people make fun of you for that. And it's just, it's, it can be an awkward instrument. You can make mistakes more easily just because of the shape of the mouthpiece and because of the length of the instrument. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. What made you stick with it? That's a great question. I think the instrument was a fit for me, just sort of came naturally to me. I also loved the way that it sounded. When I was younger than when I started the instrument, my parents joined the Columbia Masterworks cassette club and we got a new cassette every month it was such an exciting time and we'd gotten a new car that had a cassette player in it so we would drive down the highway and we would listen to all of these pieces one of them was the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto which has a huge horn solo and just the sound of it was always with me the amazing part is that I got to study with the man who played that solo years later oh wow yeah amazing it's just funny how you you conceptualize the way your instrument should sound and from a very young age I think I carried it with me and just always how I wanted to, to mm-hmm. sound. That's yeah. great. If you could play any other instrument, what would it be? I guess I'd like to know that I can play the one that I am supposed to be playing. But <laughs> um, I would I would love to play the cello. I'd love to play the oboe. Yeah, cello, I just sort of like to be in the middle. I like that sort of rich sound that blends and has this sort of rich overtone series. Oboe is just has beautiful solos always, you know, just such a great instrument. I also wish that I could play the piano just because there's so much amazing repertoire and so much to study. There's just so much to learn from the instrument. You could spend your whole life studying the music. That was three. Sorry. Not <laughs> That's okay. Well, how did you get started with the BSO? How did you find us? Well, orchestra president Kate Stocker. Right. Um, I think there was a concert in the spring of 2000. 13 or 2012, and they needed a horn player, and I came in to sort of sub for the, the concert, and we were playing Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, and that's a really 
dazzlingly hard piece for the horn and was asked to come back. And yeah. And we're so glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the horn section now, it just, I feel like with each concert, it continues to sound better and better. I'm always like, yes. We're working so. to be a section. Yeah. And I think so much in the, in the music world, there's so much that's about being an individual. And sometimes for orchestral musicians, especially for winds and brass players, it's more about playing in a section and being this unified instrument. We sort of think of the four horns in a section as fingers on a hand and an organ, you know, and with all of us trying to sound the same way, articulate the same way. And we're also really fortunate this year because the repertoire is so amazing for our instrument. Do you feel like when I'm just thinking of the slow movement of the Rimsky Korsakoff, the Capriccio Espanol, there's it starts off with the with a horn section solely, I guess yeah. it would be. Do you meet with the rest of the horn section outside of rehearsal to work through it together or I think it sort of depends on the piece. Um some of the things that are for two horns will work together just so that we're really in sync. Um, when we did the Rossini, the Semirama Day at the first concert, we worked together outside of the rehearsals. The horns sort of play this unique role in the orchestra, and when we're exposed, we're really exposed. So I think with all the mistakes that we are prone to make, I think just a little outside just makes us that much more comfortable. And sometimes for horn players, that's just the name of the game, you know. Got to be brave. <laughs> yeah. Vulnerable. <laughs> Every time you play the horn, you have to be brave, I think. And also, it's funny. You have to be willing to accept mistakes. Mm. Yeah, a lot of them. It's like philosophical. It, it, yeah, it's a metaphor for a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Inside and outside of the rehearsal. Yeah. You have been our principal horn player now for a couple of seasons. What skill set is required of you in order to lead a brass section let alone, you know, the horn section in the in the BSO or in any orchestra. It's funny. I've played the French horn for a long time. And when you play the French horn, you play a lot of different roles. And I think most French horn players learn pretty quickly that you have to learn how to be a leader and you have to learn how to follow. And even if you're sitting sometimes in the, the fourth chair, you're still a leader sometimes. There's, you know, some of the biggest solos in the repertoire are in the fourth horn. So any place you sit, you know, could be a solo part. So I think as a horn player, you have to be able to lead. You have to be able to follow. Um, I think it requires a lot of diplomacy. One of the things that we do as section leaders is is we seat the section. And everybody in the orchestra plays so well. But we have to make decisions about why someone should play a certain part and someone should play another part. And there's so much ego wrapped up in it, I think, for all of us that um, that can sometimes be really delicate. But it's a great thing for us to work through that. And just as a section, one of the things we've tried to embrace is all of us supporting each other no matter what, and trying to sometimes work so that all of us are playing all of the parts and learning them. It might not be how we'll do it in the concert, um, but it's just sort of a more open atmosphere. And I think we're trying to sort of encourage everybody to talk and to be able to give someone some critical encouragement that in other sections that I've been in in the past never was received well. So I think we've just sort of opened up those avenues. And for me, just as the section leader, it was a really rewarding thing. I want to ask you, what do you do for work? I am the associate executive director for a very wonderful, very large uh, summer arts camp called the Used Dan Summer Camp for the Arts, which is out on Long Island. I've worked there for almost 20 years. It's a, it's a really wonderful place that I think provides something that very few places can for a huge number of kids. The impact is, is rather it's profound. Uh, about 1,500 students come every year, and they come from all over the New York City area. Wow. And they come to study music, visual arts, dance, theater, writing, programs in 
recreation in nature, in chess, all sorts of things. And it's on this huge 140-acre campus, all forested with architectural studios. And there's a concert series that's presented for the kids. It's really sort of utopian. It's very... It's a very special place. The summers are crazy. Yes, they are. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I want to go to this camp. It sounds magical. (laughs) Can you describe what a typical workday would look like for you? Mm. So we have two scenarios. There's about 10 months out of the year when I work in New York City. Uh, We have an office on the Upper East Side. And I'm working in a not-for-profit organization. And I'm doing things in sort of all aspects of the organization. And what's the second scenario? The second scenario then is uh, the time during the summer when we go from a full-time staff of 14 people to a staff of more than 300 people with 1,500 students on our campus and parents and uh, the roar of the laughter of children. And there's this funny thing that happens at USDN when you walk certain ways that you can hear in one ear tap dancers and the other ear a chorus singing. And in front of you, you can hear the orchestra that Kate is conducting. It's a really special sound. It sounds like it might be cacophony, but I think it's actually music of its own. It's it's great. Houston is also sort of tucked into this forest. Very lucky I get to spend my summers there. And the summer days are a little bit different than the, <laughs> the academic year because we're dealing with this large faculty and 1,500 children and their study and their adventures and their exploration in the arts, which sometimes can be difficult and especially when they lose their lunch or they you know their tap dance shoes but it's a very rewarding work yeah 1500 mini artists not just children <laughs> 1500 artistic temperaments yes. <laughs> yes yeah that's really cool so you've talked about your work you've talked about your playing french horn what else do you like to do wow i was trying to anticipate this question um i'm a marathon runner <gasps> oh i've done four marathons wow yeah yeah someone once pointed out to me that playing the French horn, running marathons. I just seem to like long pursuits. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I enjoy that. And yeah, my body wasn't made to do many things, but it was made to run long distances very slowly. Um, So, you know, (laughs) uh, and uh, I'm a huge 30 Rock enthusiast. I like to quote it as much as possible. I mean, I'm an an avid music listener and um, concert goer, and it's been one of the greatest joys of my life. And part of the reason that I live in New York is just because it's all here. Mm-hmm. As sometimes I tell my friends, the most difficult thing in New York is not deciding what to do. It's deciding what not to do because there's so much of it. If you could have dinner with any character or personality from 30 Rock, who would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> my first thought was Kenneth Ellen Parcells, but I don't think that's it. I think it would probably be the Jane Krakowski character or Liz Lemon. Yeah. It's a yeah. good choice. The episode when Liz Lemon gets her own TV show is perhaps my favorite. You know, I never finished watching it. Oh, my gosh. I just realized that. The podcast is over. (laughs) I'm sorry. Andrew, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. It was really great. Thanks, Kate. I like it when you use your teacher voice. It's very um... (laughs) young. It's good. Please check brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast and to purchase tickets to our upcoming concert on Sunday, December 18th at 2 p.m. at the Brooklyn Museum. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter or Instagram. I'm Kate Stocker. And I'm Caitlin Choi. Thanks for listening.